All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Because Football Podcast. This year, host, Coach Andrew, and today we've got an awesome guest. We've got Coach Director Chris Steele. Uh, Chris is joining us from, from Australia, uh, although originally from Glasgow, Scotland. He's got 22 years of playing experience and coaching experience across four different continents. I'm sure most of us watching haven't even been to four continents. Uh, first of all, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Not a problem at all. Thank you for having me. Awesome. So um, let's see. Four continents, all these different countries. We got to start off with an easy one, but could also really divide opinions on you right away. Where's the best food? Best food, Singapore. And best I know food, that Singapore. The, okay. Yeah, absolutely. The the Malaysians are going to hate me for that one, uh, but I I believe that Singapore has the best food purely because it's such a melting pot. Mm-hmm. It's so multicultural you can get a 500 dollars steak if you want one or you could go and get a three or four dollar chicken fried rice um so yeah definitely singapore for me okay awesome so whatever singaporean contingent is watching they're here cheering and then the rest of us are like shoot maybe we need to head over to singapore you know um heard they have a you know something to offer but the, the food sounds fantastic so awesome um and so most recently spent time in malaysia now now based in australia as well um so clearly you know from a younger age you were comfortable or at least uh curious enough to kind of step outside of your comfort zone um when do you kind of remember the earliest times of like hey i'm gonna take this game wherever it leads me if you ask my mother what have i always said i wanted to be football professional football and that was it there was no second choice and I think that's one of the things that my mother and my father tried to instill in me like you need a plan b and Mm. you know towards the end of my career I had a knee injury that didn't help me come back to playing so I'm I'm glad that I had the experience of going out I'm glad that my father was a coach Uh, I followed in his footsteps a little bit and I'm thankful for my family traveling you know as a family we went to Spain on holiday I remember uh, going to my aunt's wedding, who was based in Australia at the time, and we went Glasgow to Sydney. Uh, So getting on a plane and spending hours just in the air, it's kind of been part of who I am from a a young Mm. age. Um, My mother's elder and younger sister have been based here for decades. And when I was 12, I came on holiday on my own to Australia. So my mom and dad dropped me off at the airport in Glasgow. Set me up with the airlines. The airlines were great. But, you know, doing that 24-hour flight on my own and then getting picked up at the other end in Sydney and just getting on a plane has always been something I've enjoyed and going to experience new and different places. Yeah, and that's quite a journey too, I was going to say. To be 12 and have nobody else with you, it's not not for the faint of heart for sure. Um, and, and fantastic. And so then kind of looking, you know, at that original passion for the game, you know, can you remember, like, what are your first experiences playing and, and being involved what did that look like first thing that I remember was being on a red ash pitch so like in a red gravel and the wind the sleet the snow the rain just howling at me and people don't kind of digest or understand it now but I think I started playing when I was five or six and that was on a full size pitch an 11 a size 11 a side size wow. pitch that's just the way it was Uh, And it's mental to think about that now. And I'm sure for 90% of the game, I didn't even see the ball, never mind get on Mm -hmm. the ball or be anywhere included in the game. Um, But remembering, you know, the cold fingers, the cold face, uh, going from being outside and getting into a hot shower and anyone who's ever been in, you know, cold environments and done that, you know, your hands and your feet, you know, they they get really sore really fast. So, that is not a nice first memory. And maybe that's why I've gravitated towards a lot of hotter countries for yeah. coaching and playing. Um, but yeah, just being on being on that red ash pitch, playing football in school every single day, mm-hmm. uh, turning up to school early and just hitting a ball off a wall. Yeah, so that's that's kind of where it started at school um, with with friends. And and then, but you mentioned, you know, your your father was a coach as well. Um, so do you think from a younger age, you kind of picked up that desire to be a coach too? Uh, or or was it more of just like, you just f- so focused on playing, obviously, and just wanted to be involved with the ball yourself? 
there was definitely an influence from him on on the coaching side. Um, he played himself and ended up shattering his kneecap at 21, I think it was, and that kind of ended his career. So that was a a hard stop. And okay, what can I do to still be involved in football? And he became a coach. Uh, and we spent not enough hours talking about coaching. We spent not enough mm. hours talking about the game. And I remember he was coaching a team and I was playing with an academy. I think I was at Clyde at the time. And he just asked me, do you want to come along to our training session tonight? Yeah, no bother. Went along and they were working on something and my dad broke the kids up into groups and he said, why don't you take those guys? Okay. And I just kind of went and did, I did what I had done. Uh, you know, monkey see, monkey do type thing. Yep. And from there, I just kind of got more and more interested. And when I was 16, I think it was 15 or 16, one of my old youth coaches who was a, a police officer, he came to myself and a group of guys that I played with and said, look, the police in this area are starting up a pilot program for at-risk youths. Would I be willing to be part of the pilot project so that I could give feedback on each of the steps? Mm. And myself and my, my teammates were like, yeah, no problem. So we... We got like a six-week gym membership. We went and did our lifeguarding course and we did our first step on the SFA's coaching ladder. So we, we all went into their grassroots coaching course. Fantastic. And I'm sure that was when I was 16. And from there, I just, yep, I can do this. I, I want to do this. Um, and I'll I'll do this alongside playing. And when I can't play, mm-hmm. that should hopefully be an easy sidestep. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's how it turned out. So you kind of made your vision of reality. Do you think... Like I, I've heard so much said, and I've heard some people say, like, you can't really fully be a coach until you stop being a player, right? And then there's some people who say that, you know, you, you can benefit a lot as a player from doing your, your coaching licenses or courses or badges and getting a sense. Like, can you think of some examples of how taking those coaching courses may have helped you as a player? Or do you think, you know, there's some some benefits there, but really as a player, you just it, it's you're kind of operating on on different principles and different motivation. I'll definitely agree with what you said about after getting your coaching courses, the, the badges, then you become a better player. That's how I feel. That's how I felt at the time. Because you just think about different parts of the game. You think about the game more, deeper, and it helped me as a player. And as a player, I predominantly played in defence, left, right, centre. It didn't really matter. But I found as though I found my best position when I was 24 and that was sweeper now I I believe and correct me if I'm wrong here that sweeper is the NFL equivalent of safety it's the guy who's kind of at the back and and reads place surveying right yeah so for me understanding coaching understanding the game better allowed me to read the game better allowed Mm -hmm. me to be in the right place at the right time earlier and I can always go back to the, the Paolo Maldini thing of if I've had to make a slight tackle, I've already made a mistake. Sure. Yeah. Because so yeah, you didn't read the can... situation and react in time. Yeah. Yeah. So it certainly helped me from a, a playing perspective. And at that point at 24, I had already done up to the first part of my Asian A license. So there was one game and I'm, I'm thinking about a coach, George Cowie who came through the West Ham Academy. He was my coach in Queensland, Australia. Um, I was dropped for a game. Nine games into the season, I think we had one, eight, drawn one. And I was dropped for a game and I was livid, absolutely raging with him. And one of my good mates, Jared Tyson, who was the goalkeeper, asked me to warm him up. I was like, yep, no bother, I'll go and do that. And then George said, I've got to take care of something, Steely. Um, can you run the warm-up for the team? Now, for whatever reason, we were away. it was an away game and our assistant coach wasn't there. Mm. So I, yep, no bother, went and took the warm-up for the team. And the end-of-season dinner, George actually mentioned that moment. And he said he could have been the worst player in the squad at that point. He had been dropped after having nine games unbeaten. We were blitzing mm-hmm. the league. And then he was off to the side. 
and he still did the right thing for the team. And I think that's a something as a coach you need to do. You need to do the right thing for the team, no matter what yeah. it is. So if I had just been in that player mindset, yeah, nah, screw you. I'm not. I'm not going to do this. You've just dropped me, and you've not given me a good reason in my mind for it. So you're the coach. You do the warm up. But that kind of coaching side of me, I think, kicked in. It was okay. We yeah. are in a league here. We need these three points. We've travelled away for the game. Um, you know, in that situation, the the win, the draw, and the loss bonus makes a big difference to guys. So okay. If I want to get that win bonus as well, if I want the guys to go out and perform, Mm -hmm. then yeah, let's do the best thing for the team. And of course, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm I'm sure in that match after you guys won, the coach gave you a bit of his bonus as well, right? Absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) I wish it went that way, Um, but I think it was it was a a nice moment in the the end of season celebration that we had that he pointed that moment out and said okay this guy's for the team for the club so that was nice recognition yeah absolutely yeah a bonus that doesn't show up on your bank account but you know makes some kind of impact all the less um yes so so awesome so you know you played like in australia obviously and then and then at some point i guess tell us about what kind of open you're like okay i've, I've done the 24-hour trip to australia before uh, I'm, I'm used to it here now it's time out to try, you know, East Asia and, and your times in, in Hong Kong and then in, in Malaysia as well. And then tell us more about kind of what kind of opened you up to that experience. Well, growing up in Glasgow, biggest city in Scotland, um, I then, after leaving Falkirk, which was finishing school and signed for Falkirk, I got released from there. Then I had an opportunity to come and play in Sydney. So I did that for a year and I thought, okay, Sydney's the biggest city in Australia. Done that, done Glasgow. And then I had an opportunity to go to Evansville, Indiana for university. And I thought, okay, I've done the city stuff. Evansville is not a city. Um, Not at all. So I I took the opportunity and I did not enjoy my time at all. (laughs) It was not a a good experience for me. Uh, So I, I think I went there in July, ended up leaving at the Christmas break in December and that was it. And it was at that point that I knew I'm a city boy. You know, I've done small town, I've right. done a big city. Right. And I know where to go. And after coming back to Sydney, playing for a while, um, I then had the opportunity to go back home and trial for a team. But as part of my visa to be in Australia, I had to study full time. And my my exam for the end of year made me miss pre-season in Scotland. Mm-hmm. So by the time that I got back to Scotland, the the team that I was working with kind of went, but good player, we'd love to have you, but we've just got no more spaces in our squad. And then I got pretty much a, a, a random email from someone saying, I've got an opportunity for you in Hong Kong. What do you think? Well, I've got nothing in Australia right now. I've got nothing in Scotland right now. Let's give it a try. Stuff to lose. Yeah. It's, it is a city, massive city. Yeah. Yeah, um, and it's a, an absolutely fantastic city as well. Um, I've my favourite tailor in the whole world, Sam's Tailor, is there. Um, hi, Roshan. That'll be worth a discount. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll put the link in the bottom and your uh, your, absolutely. your coupon code. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I, I got off the plane and I had one of the first things that hit me is the the humidity. You know, the the humidity in Australia. Yeah, it has it, but it's different from Southeast Asia. Not that tropical and, feeling necessarily, yeah. Sticks yeah. to you. Yeah, absolutely. So the wardrobe that I had in Scotland was absolutely useless. You know, even in summer in Scotland, it doesn't get that hot. So I had to go and buy a whole new set of clothes. I remember leaving Hong Kong and at the airport, my bags were too heavy. So I just had to ditch a whole load of stuff. Um, but Hong Kong was... A fantastic experience, a, a definitely an eye-opening experience. Uh, I don't think I've ever been as fit. You know, we were doing two sessions a day. It was 36, 37 degrees, and you know, it was about a million percent humidity. Yeah, so mm. you're you're struggling against the air just to run through it. Yeah. But it was a fantastic experience. You know, at that point in time, 
all the games were played at one stadium, Moncock Stadium. So they would start and it would just be, I think, um, 10 teams in the league at that time. So you would have three games on Saturday, two games on Sunday or vice versa. And if you were in that fifth game and it had been raining because, you know, being tropical, you can get monsoon type weather. Yeah, absolutely. Um, if you're in that fifth game of the weekend and you're playing at Moncock Stadium and the mud is that deep, uh, it's not enjoyable, but you got to make it work. you got to make it happen. Thankfully, since that point, more stadia are being used around Hong Kong for the, the league matches. Uh, but it's little things like that that you remember. The, the stadium was also infested is probably the wrong word, but it was infested with dragonflies. So if you're standing in the stand, you will have a thousand dragonflies around you. Wow. So it's uh, not it's, exactly it's, pulling in the spectators and things too, or you're, you don't want to be on the subs bench just because you don't want to get uh, blanketed with, with dragonflies. I will say they were they were nice enough to me that they wouldn't land on me. And I don't know if they bite, but it was just a, an odd experience to to be sitting watching a game in this massive city and you've just got thousands of dragonflies around you. Uh, you know, there's parts of Hong Kong that, and this I'm talking about 2007, so it was 10 years after the, the British to China handover. Mm. And there were parts of it that were still very, very British. And then you would walk down an alleyway or you would turn a corner and immediately you felt the difference. You are now in Hong Kong, you are now in China. And being able to adapt to certain circumstances was something that I had to learn how to do. You know, obviously living in Scotland, living in Australia, uh, going to university in America, English is the primary language. You know, There's obviously shared cultural values, shared historical sure. uh, values. But Hong Kong and China is different. And there was, where I was staying, there was a bar just a few doors down from the place that I was staying. But there was only ever like four guys in it. And I asked one of my teammates, like, how does this place operate? And he said, it's a triad bar. Mm. He said, look, you know, don't go in there. You're not looking for any hassle. But, you know, don't go in there. And I said, look, is it safe to be around this place? Yeah, my teammate asked me, how much money do you have in your wallet? I don't know, I had a look, and it was about 200 Hong Kong dollars. And he went, right, you're not worth our time. Unless you go and aggravate these guys, you're not worth our time. So that was, again, one of these little eye-opening experiences that you've got when, when you do travel that you might not think about when you're at home. So, yeah, Hong yes. Kong was fantastic, and it gave me a massive amount of cultural shock. Um, I love the, the food scene in Hong Kong as well. Uh, wherever I go, I always look for food. So um, uh, I like Hong Kong from that perspective as well. Uh, but this is one of the things that I've tried to get across to coaches and players. You need to be comfortable being uncomfortable. Mm. Because when we were playing, the, the club had an AGM and the entire board of directors changed. And overnight, they wanted to become the local team. So myself and a, a couple of Brazilian boys, all right, you're no longer part of the team. Goodbye. And that was overnight. So being comfortable in uncomfortable situations is something that for anyone, player, coach, journalist, I would say get used to thinking on your feet and be ready for a change. You know, a plan as much as you might have it written down on paper or, you know, in the notes of your phone, be ready to be flexible, be ready to adapt. Yeah. And and that was sticking out to me, even when you were saying, you know, you were planning to go back to Scotland for a trial and then that didn't work out. And all of a sudden this email from from Hong Kong comes and just with the the nature of football as a, as a business, you know, whatever level you're at, like you said, it can change. And, and, and those changes by the board, it wasn't necessarily based on your performance at all. Uh, it was just like they just wanted to go a different direction. So they're making those decisions. Um, so obviously that's not a, it's not a world or an industry necessarily for everybody. So what for you just like makes it worth all of that, that has and some of those, those challenges, like what kept you just keep putting your head down and trying um, to, to make things work. It goes back to that question you asked at the beginning, you know, when did you want to be a footballer as a kid or, you know, what did you want to be 
grown up and just telling my mum, I'm going to be a professional footballer. And I said, if I get a contract on the moon, I'll go. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, there's no plan B, so, right? It's just that's um, it. I, I, that's changed a little bit over time. Now, maybe with a little bit of maturity and experience. Uh, but it reminds me of the thing that Pep Guardiola said, uh, I think it was in his first season at, at Man City when things weren't going right. And he was asked about plan B. And he said, plan B is to make plan A better. Now, there is no plan B, just make it better. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. okay, if if there's no opportunity for me here, where else can I go? And that drive, that determination, that grit to accept a refusal, to accept a rejection, to accept defeat and keep going. You need that in any sport, not just football. For right? sure. You're playing basketball, ice hockey, you're a gymnast, whatever it might be. And if you, to your core, feel that this is the thing that I belong doing, push on. Becoming a coach is a little bit different. Becoming a coach, if you can see development of players, you know, working in youth football from session to session, week to week, month to month, you can see players growing, you can see them developing. Mm-hmm. And that's a massive driver. You know, being For able sure. to work with coaches and get them across certain hurdles that they'll face, whether it is addressing a group, whether it is session planning, season planning, helping people get better, that always feels good. Absolutely. And I was and I was thinking there like so you have to have that that drive, determination, the kind of the going all in, burning the boats, no turning back, going all in on plan A. Uh, and obviously there's part of that that just comes comes from me as a person. Um, but like as coaches, right, or, or I'm thinking of a lot of like parents um, that, that might be listening and I'm talking to parents of players all the time and, you know, their kids are having trouble with the like confidence and, and you know, resilience is such a, a big word, at least in the United States within schools and things, of, <clears> you know, because we live in a very insecure world and, and with the internet and access to information, a lot of kids are aware of that. And, and so this gets to a bigger conversation, but as coaches, as parents, or as like, you know, um, caregivers of children in general, like, can we do anything to help instill that that determination and drive? Uh, and if there is, like, what can we do? Let them fall. You know, if, if they're on the monkey bars and they're, they're swinging away and you as a, a parent think, I need to go and grab them, let them fall. And the perfect example for me of that is my brother. He has got a two-year-old daughter and we went to the park last week. And in the park, there is uh, ropes and they go up about 10 feet tall. And this little two-year-old girl is hand over hand, foot over foot, climbing up these ropes. And she got to the first one and up and down on her own. The second one, she gets to the top and she's starting to get her breath. I'm starting to get her breath just watching her. But then as she's coming down, she's really, really hesitant. And Adam, to his credit, you know, he, he got the hand out there just ready to catch her, but didn't support her. Told her what to do, walked her through it. But if she was going to fall, he would have caught her. But he didn't put the hands on her. He let her feel that little bit of insecurity. He let her mm-hmm. kind of work it out for herself. And that's taking it from that very hands-on parenting approach. How do you transfer that into a coaching approach? You can still let players fail. You can still give them a challenge. And then step back and not say anything. And that's one of the things that I have been criticised for at times is not being as engaged with players, telling them what to do, shouting at them. But how are they going to learn to the best of their ability? How are they going to reach their full potential if their potential is limited by you, your knowledge? Players on the pitch might see something different. I would think that whoever has coached Kevin De Bruyne probably isn't as good a player as he is. He's definitely top three in the world for midfielders for me at this point in time. Uh, but you tell me the guy who was coaching him when he was 10, 11, 12 mm-hmm. was seeing the stuff that he saw when he was 16, 17, 18. He was bursting into first teams and the coach at the side might have gone, I need to give this kid room to do what he does and reach his full potential. So, yeah, I would say let players fail, let kids fall, let them get back up and try and find a solution. 
one of the things that I tried to instill in the coaching group that I worked with previously was my philosophy of for players, try, fail, try, coach. So let the players try and let them fail. Let them try again to work out what their failure was. Mm-hmm. And if they fail that second time, then we can step in with some guidance. So try, fail, try, fail, coach. Um, it might not be for everyone, but I've, I've found a little bit of success with that methodology. Yeah. I like that a lot. I do a lot of private one-on-one training. And so in that environment, like it can be a lot, you know, and I like to, to, to give a lot of detail and give it because I get really nerdy, right. About all the aspects of technique and things. And and I want to be able to help, but something I've started to realize lately is like, in a way I need to be given a lot and help support with that energy. Um, But it's like, I think one of the hardest things is like, when to step in. So I really like that, that mantra there of try, fail, try coach. I had one of my players just this evening, very talented, like naturally gifted kid. He's what he's, if he's not nine, he'll be, you know, 10 this year. Um, he can go from like, so confident and just, you know, stringing his strikes or his passes. And then all of a sudden like two or three go bad and he's like on the verge of tears, you know? And it's like, I've gotten to know him. And so I know his cycles a little more and I try to talk through, but it's always a challenge of like, all right, when do I kind of just let him and let him figure it out and, and let that challenge and let that frustration and failure, like be the the learning for him. And then it's like when to support. So I think it's a, you know, a, a, a tough thing to, to keep in mind, but I like that approach of, you know, letting them figure it out first and then, and then do it ourselves. Uh, and kind of on that same note of, of kind of like the technical training, like part of your, your journey I saw has been with, with Corver coaching. And, and for those who don't know, you know, it's all over the world. Um, and, and I remember even doing it as a kid myself in, in the States. And it's really focused on teaching like ball mastery and foundational like technical skills. So from your experience doing that first, could you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about that and, and like how you feel it fits in with a, a player's development in general? Yeah, the way that I phrase it is, Curver is about individual technical development. So you can have a class of 20 kids and they can all be of different abilities, but it doesn't really matter because it's about what you do with the ball. It's individual Mm -hmm. development. Uh, I don't like it as a standalone program where all you do is go to Curver and then you play games at the weekend because you're missing out on the, the the technical and the team aspect of it. And I think it's a great supplement to a team program. Mm-hmm. I think at some point, every coach has wanted better technical players. <laughs> you you want them to be able to play that pass, you know, find that through ball, take on that defender. So it is very much a, a great supplement that whether it is an outside provider, a curver coach brought into a club, or you upskilling yourself or your, your own coaches within your group, you know, individual technical development is necessary in my mind and I think when you're looking at your favourite moments in football what are the things for you that stand out you've probably got you know a bicycle kick from Rooney against Man City that, that's somewhere yeah. in the back you mean. Right. you've got that, that goal that Messi scored that was almost identical to the one that Maradona scored against mm-hmm. England that was in the exactly World what I was thinking yeah, yeah. Uh, but those are individual moments and some of the best individual moments that you could probably pick out from any sport come back to individual technique. Now, for me, I'm a little bit different. I was never the guy to get the ball and beat 10 players. Uh, so I think about Argentina's goal against Serbia. I think it was at the German World Cup 2006. 18, goal, 18 passes, uh, something like that? Something like that, yeah. But, I mean, that, yeah. that included so many players, so many little ones too. So yeah. that needs individual technique to be able to play those passes, but mm-hmm. it also needs the the team function in there as well. So and I, if anyone's ever listened to anything I've said before, I've probably brought up the old army adage of a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And I think that can be used for an individual. You as a player are only as strong as your poorest facet mm-hmm. and a team, you're only as strong as your poorest player. So, to make the team better, we can make the individual better. To make the individual better, we can work on their technical development. Um, that's that's the way that Curver kind of fits in for, for me into a program. Yeah, so then what I'm hearing then, if, if there are like players or parents listening, it's like 
we need more than only the technical. So, but it's a great supplement. So like, for example, through transform soccer's, you know, we're offering a lot of the technical side because, you know, and, and I've, I've coached teams and I just get it. You just don't have enough time. A lot of time, the, the technical, the hard thing about it is that there's no shortcuts. Um, it re- literally is just the player obsessing, being obsessed with the ball. So we offer that once a week, but we also understand that they've got to be with their, the regular teams and seeing the tactical side of things. And, and, you know, as, as I would say to a lot of parents, you know, the team strategy and how the team fits together. And, and so you do need all of it, just kind of that, the next step. Um, but but I know that your experience, I believe you started with it in Australia and then it took you to India. So I'd be really fascinated to hear about, you know, what what that experience was like uh, in a country where uh, cricket is massive, but obviously in certain areas, there's huge passion for the game. Yeah. Soccer. Uh, so I, I was I was in Queensland, Australia. I was the uh, franchise E4 curver and I got the opportunity to go to India to coach the coaches. And I went there for a month. Um, I went to Delhi, Nainital, which is up in the Himalayas in Bombay. Spent a month there working with coaches. Then back to Australia. And the guy who owned the rights to Curver India got in contact with me after a while and said, look, do you want to come and run the whole thing? Okay. That that sounded interesting. Um, So I took the opportunity, went and worked in India for a year was based in uh in Mumbai and I again I, I sought out everywhere good to eat. I've still got a, a good friend there, Truvia, who you know kind of pointed me in the right direction, helped me out. Um I enjoy spicy food, but they take it to a whole new level. It's another level, um, right? Yeah. <clears throat> absolutely. Um there was in fact when I went to coach the coaches, I was based at a gene institute. And I don't want to do it a disservice. So I'll, I'll kind of say it as basic form, like they, if I'm correct, they don't do like garlic or root vegetables or onions or anything like that within their cooking. Right. And, and just to dal- interject real quick, Jane is like a, a religion, right? So correct. Yeah. religion, right? So people in there yeah. follow, yeah, very, I've even read that like, you know, the Jane monks, they, they like, watch exactly where they're looking because they don't want to step on a fly or a, a, the smallest bug on the ground because they just have that reverence for all life. So I just want to give everybody that yeah. primer, but please uh, yeah. continue. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, I was based there. That's where I was staying. Whilst the coaches would come in during the day, we would do our bit and then they would go back home. And I was starting to go kind of getting cabin fever because for breakfast, lunch and dinner, it was dull. Now, dal's okay, but after two weeks of it being breakfast, lunch, dinner, and it was red and yellow and green and brown and red yep. and yellow, I, yeah, I just started kind of going, I need to get out of here. So two of the coaches said, we'll come and pick you up for, for dinner tonight. You know, we'll, we'll come at this time. It was like, brilliant. And these guys came from the, the border region of India and Nepal. So guy comes and picks me up and he's on a motorbike and before this I had I never really thought about you know getting to where we're going to go but I'd never been on a motorbike in my life before and I don't think I've ever hugged a man as hard as I did on that (laughs) motorbike ride (laughs) the the traffic in India is absolutely bonkers yeah wild um you know just the the sheer volume of traffic you know Mm -hmm. red lights are a suggestion um you know traffic lanes you know they might as well just save the paint and not put it on the road exactly uh, you know they they hit the horn for everything you know whether they're going forwards backwards left right hi how you doing it's just constantly on the horn uh, and you know he ends up going on the wrong side of the road you know and i'm freaking out like my face is buried in this guy's back <laughs> and i just stay there because i am freaking out get to his place and after half an hour of just shaking uh, I get served this phenomenal phenomenal curry and I could only take three bites of it because it was so hot Uh, oh it was and again I I enjoy spicy food uh, but this was just a completely different level and India was the place that I found out that spicy food doesn't equal hot food 
you can have spices mm. that will just make things taste really, really flavorful. Uh, but they take hot to a new level. And the guys ended up giving me cabbage juice. This, this is the local secret. Cabbage juice will take away the heat. You'll be fine after this. Uh, and then after that, I had to get back on the bike and go back to the place I was staying. <laughs> but you know, that's one of those eye-opening things that you just don't experience or don't expect when you, you go to coach coaches. Yeah, uh, and it was just another another layer of what can India provide you to broaden your horizons. You know, you you coached then at that point a bit in Australia and then in India, and of course then more recently in, in Malaysia, um, I think in, in Canada as well and in Scotland. Um, so I, I guess I'm curious, like when you're working with younger kids, let's say like 12 and under, you know, is there a big difference in coaching them at those those younger ages or, you know, what would you say, or is there more of a, a similarity among kids like of, of the younger ages? It really depends on the culture of the place. The biggest thing that I've found is when they're really, really young, when they're four, five, six years old, kids are kids. They'll just run around daft and you know, yeah. you're trying to help them develop gross motor skills rather than football skills. But when they start getting into school, that's when I've seen the difference on how people will react to coaches um, I've worked with a lot of Asian kids who when you're talking to them they won't look at you they won't look you direct in the eye because mm-hmm. you know, that's just the way it is I'll, I'll listen to you but I'll be looking here you know, in Scotland, Australia Canada, America if someone's talking to you and you're not looking at them that's disrespectful or that's rude yeah. so being able to step into an environment and start to understand the culture is massive for any any person that wants to start traveling. Um, you know, there's a an old trope in the UK where you know if someone goes to Spain, they're trying to buy something and the, the Spanish cashier doesn't understand them. So they just shout what they want louder in English. You know, it doesn't quite work that way. Yeah. So being able just to add even just a couple of words to your vocabulary, I've found that people are very appreciative of you making the effort it might be wrong it might be wrong that what you're saying but they appreciate it and one of the things that i found i can i can do okay in bahasa malayu now uh, but i'll still get the words the wrong way you know it's a bit like in in french where uh, you'll say horse white whereas in english we'll say white horse yeah in bahasa malayu they do very much the similar thing of horse white Um, so I'll mess it up, but the person receiving that gets what I mean. And they're just a lot more open. They're a lot more inviting. They are more amenable to whatever nonsense I'm asking for at that time. So understanding the culture will help you understand those kids, those Mm. 12 and under. So if they go to school and they're taught, you know, eyes and ears here, then you might expect that as a coach. If their culture is not to look someone direct in the eye, that can be a little bit off-putting initially as a coach going into a foreign environment. But yeah, just can you understand the people? And if you understand the people, it makes everything a lot easier. And so how do you understand the people? I I had this conversation with another coach a few episodes back and he had coached in Thailand and in China and in South Africa for shorter stints and in the US. And, And so I'm curious, you know, if I go to places I like to read, I like to watch things about the the places but you know is there any like shortcut or is it just try and fail right like you just try and you figure it out i'm not a huge one for touristy activities when i go somewhere so for example i've never been to new york but if i went to new york i probably wouldn't want to go and visit the statue of liberty you know that that just doesn't it doesn't say new york to me so when i go to singapore I don't really want to go and do the real touristy things there. Mm-hmm. If someone comes to visit, sure, we'll go and see the Maryland, we'll go to Marina Bay. Someone comes to KL, we'll go and see the Petronas Towers, but that's not KL, that's not Malaysia for me. So I go and try and find the hole-in-the-wall restaurants, and it all comes back to food for me, always. Uh, but find the places that you can sit down and chat with people over, okay, what is this thing? You know, I've heard of Roti Chennai before, but what is it? What goes into Nasi Lemak? Uh, being able to, and uh, the the food of a country is quite often a point of pride for them. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. if I was to say that, and I, I, 
you know, I used to wind up one of my coaches, Malik, all the time. Malaysia takes great pride in it, Sati. But I would always say that Sati comes from Thailand. And that would just wind him up nonstop. So food for me is a great connector because I didn't know the history of Sati. And then he just kind of opened up. No, no, it's not Thai. It's this, it's that it came from. And he'll learn about the country through people's passion yeah. Is, yeah. is really good for me because I, I want to talk to people. I want to have a conversation. I don't want to just go and read a Wikipedia page. Mm. Uh, so come back to the food. Come back to the language of finding it. Well, did you know that nasi meant rice? No, I didn't. Did you know that goring means fried? No, I didn't. So then you start picking up little bits of the language, which leads you into a little bit of the culture, which leads you to, you know, varied in many ways of finding out about the place and the people. So yeah. the shortcut for me, always the food. Yeah. yeah, and the food. And I think to that point is like the the thing that's kind of almost the, the elephant in the room here, like what we're talking about, is the game of football itself of being a connector too. Um, and so I think, uh, but obviously we're, we're trying to connect with people as coaches. We have to connect with people on a personal level, understand them. You know, we have to, to, to greet this child kind of like where, where they're at. And yes, we have our way of, of communicating, doing things, but it really takes, takes being adaptable as well. Um, if we pivot a little bit to like talking about the game and, and how it shows up in, in different places, um, you know, whether it is in, in Australia versus Scotland and then in your experiences is in, in India and then to Malaysia. Um, what do you think over the last, like, I don't know, 15, let's say, you know, 22 years you've been involved with the game at some stage. Um, how have you seen the game grow in some of these areas that we might not necessarily consider or on an, uh, a world level, right? I think the most obvious one, the most recent one for me is women's football. You know, the, the World Cup here in Australia just finished last weekend and every news bulletin, they're talking about the Matildas. They're talking about the the World Cup, who who scored, you know, what's coming up next for them. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very, very fortunate that this current, or the, the World Cup squad for the Matildas, I've been fortunate enough to work with four of those players. So I had a vested interest in what was going on with them. Absolutely. Uh, but seeing in that 22 years, and even just the last decade, the growth of women's football. You know, I the last time I lived in Australia was 2013. And looking at what has happened between 13 and 23 is brilliant. There's obviously a big deal being made by the women's national team in America about equal pay, and that's kind of spread to the the English national team, the Australian, and trying to make sure that players can live off the game. Mm-hmm. And I, I saw something on Twitter yesterday, and to kind of take it away from but bring it back to football, uh, someone was talking about UFC and the fighters in UFC get paid $12,500 per fight for the, the lower ranked guys. And so that's why they need other jobs. You, know, you can't live on that for a year. And some of the guys only get one or two fights a year. So that's why right. they need to go and do other stuff. Well, that's exactly what women's football was doing. You know, We would have players who were playing in Australia. They would do the season there and then they would go and play in America and they would find a, a team there. And they had other jobs on the side as well because there just wasn't the the financial input to make it work. And I think America, by volume of players, is a bit different from other places. You've got such mm-hmm. a, a massive uh, a massive group of young girls and women who are playing the game that, okay, these players can have a full-time job in football. And then that supports everything else. You know, It supports the... The coach, the assistant coach, the goalkeeping coach, the fitness coach, you know, the the admin people, you know, the people who are working at the the stadium. Um, so that in the last ten to twenty years has been a massive bit um, of growth that I've seen, and then it's the knock on effect of do you get little girls wanting to play as well? For sure, yeah. There are still there are still places that it's frowned upon almost that girls want to get involved. Um, I have had conversations with a couple of parents in Malaysia about, well, my two sons can play, but my daughter can't play. Mm. And when I ask why, yeah, she's not allowed to. Now that, as the person that I am, I'm curious enough to find out, well, why are you saying that? 
But again, this is where being culturally sensitive, you can't come in as a foreigner and say, well, you're doing it wrong. It may be wrong from my perspective, my opinion, mm-hmm. but you know, I can't step into Malaysia or Hong Kong or you know Australia and say, you guys have got it backwards. You guys are doing this wrong. It's okay. How can we adapt to what we do as coaches, but to make it as inclusive as possible? And it might just be saying to the little girl, when the two boys are training, here's a ball. Just take the ball and, and you can go and do your own thing and try and get her engaged in playing that way. Um, so, yeah, it's biggest thing that changed is that uh, girls' football, massive change. The other big differences that I see are the way that things are reported, You know, whether it is player safety, um, coaches' safety. You know, I had a, an incident earlier this year where we were at a tournament and a coach from a Chinese team ran 40 yards to hit a 15-year-old kid. And when I stepped in and got him, you know, away from the kid, you know, he stepped back and he started laughing. He said, oh, it's okay, sorry, sorry, it's okay. No, it's not okay. You know, you've run 40 yards and this guy's in his 50s. So that mm. 40 yards that you had to think, you just switched off your brain. And when speaking to the kid, I'm like, look, are you okay? Do you want me to call your parents? Do you want me to call the police? Because this is an assault, man. This isn't in the game. This is a coach stepping into the field. Mm-hmm. And the boy was saying, no, 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 it's okay. It's okay. Don't, no, don't worry about it. And that kind of comes back to the culture of what happens in school, what happens in daily life, what happens in family life. And he didn't want to make a big deal of it. Yeah. But if you put that into an American perspective, you put it in a Scottish or an Australian perspective, that guy's getting the police called on him. Mm-hmm. Now, that guy should probably never coach again. The same day, I had one of my female coaches threatened by someone saying, if you weren't a woman, I would hit you. Now, I am massively proud because we had a 14-year-old kid who heard that, saw that, and he stepped in. Mm. A 14-year-old. And this is two adults. But that adult, who was working for a club in Singapore, thought it was okay to say that to a female coach. The organiser didn't want to take a didn't want to take an active role in stamping yeah. that out and saying that yeah. this is not okay. So for me, and I'm sure the vast majority of coaches out there for any sport, the first thing that you look after is safety. Make sure that it's a safe environment for the kids to turn up and initially mm-hmm. have fun to develop to get better. But when I've raised issues of predatory behaviour with the the head of grassroots at the FAM and this was parents turning up to a refugee's house and refugees in Malaysia have got a a weird kind of status they're allowed in the country but they're not allowed to work Um, they they kind of have to do whatever they need to do to get by so parents from one club turned up to a refugee boy's house for the club that I was working with and bullied them in to going to training bullied them into change club. I've heard of players getting offered PlayStations, players getting offered boots, players getting offered money. Oh, we'll cover your transport. And if you don't have any of those things, sound great. Mm-hmm. But when you bring up predatory behaviour like an underage boy being bullied into change clubs and the National Association doesn't even respond to an email, that's where I think it's our responsibility as, and I think you mentioned the term safeguarders mm-hmm. earlier on, we need to say something. You know, we need to make sure that the bad stuff, and I'm not talking about cultural differences, I'm talking about assaulting a kid, I'm yeah. talking about threatening yeah. a coach. We need to speak up, we need to say something. And I don't believe that that's a, a cultural difference, I believe that's a human difference. Um, so yeah, there's for all the incredible experiences that I've had, you know, learning about different countries, different people, different food. We can't be naive. We need to understand that there's still stuff that goes on that shouldn't go on. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, if and or when that stuff does happen, how do we react? What do we do to make the situation better? 
And that could be better for everyone, or it could be just better for that one kid. How do we get that one kid out of a, a situation that's not good for them? So, yeah, it's being able to travel is fantastic. I feel very privileged to have the, the job that I've had. I feel very honoured to have worked with the, the calibre of player that I had and, and some of the people that I've met are just are phenomenal. But we need to understand that sometimes it's a big, bad world and that mm-hmm. you as a person need to be brave to say things at times. And even that 14-year-old boy, he stepped in between his coach and this adult guy and said, no, you know, put yourself back into being a 14-year-old kid would you have had the character to do that? Mm. I don't know if I would have. I, I would like to think I would have, but this kid stepped up and did it. So, yeah, and I think that comes from the environment that you create. Do you empower people to be able to do that? Do you make them feel safe enough to speak out when something's wrong? So, yeah, we are definitely more than football coaches. Mm-hmm. We are... Mm-hmm environment coaches we're people coaches and being able to link with like-minded people to create better environments yeah sometimes we need to link with people who are on the wrong end of the spectrum from our perspective to say look can we move the needle on this can we try and make things better and sometimes that's really difficult because the people who have got exactly what they want don't want to give up any power don't want to move anything because they've got exactly Mm -hmm. what they want but if we can get enough like-minded people making enough noise to try and make environments better, to try and make circumstances better for players, coaches, parents, we might just be able to make make our environment that little bit better. Yeah, I think even looking at the, you know, you're sharing these stories from youth and grassroots level in Malaysia, but we're, if you even look at the headlines recently with the Women's World Cup and how many of the teams and federations have been involved in scandals of, of abuse, alleged abuse, whatever it is, with, you know, the, the Spain trophy presentation with, like, the for president of the federation yep. kissing a player, like, on the mouth, like, in from the entire world, and he his initial response was calling everyone to criticize that idiots right and now he's had the backup and so it's that that pressure but i think the challenging part is like until things change there's like there's so many like if you are that voice speaking out like the messed up thing is that like more often than not you get you're standing up so you can take the the satisfaction the fulfillment of like hey and, and that strength and that like fortitude of yourself of like what i did was right i was courageous but unfortunately, in many cases, that person ends up being punished themselves, right? Or that person ends up suffering. You think about, you know, and and so I guess my question is like, and you alluded to it a bit of how that can change. And that for me is like a cultural issue. And we can talk about cultures of countries, but also of like, of clubs, of organizations. Um, because obviously, with some of the clubs you mentioned, if that's behavior, it's probably not the first time that's happened. So there's probably been sure. times it's happened before. So like, what do you think if, if you're somebody coming into a new environment, you have a leadership role, you have a bit more say, like, what can you do to try to change that that type of culture and make it a more positive, a more safe type of environment for, for players? That's a big question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think for my head immediately went to something that Sir Alec Ferguson said, and it was standards are from day one. You don't build up to standards. This is our bar. And if you can or won't meet it, move on. Uh, you know, change the people if you can't change the people, that type of thing. Mm. But I think it's been clear. So you can have high standards, you can have low standards, you can have anything in between. But being clear about what your standards are, I think, is really important. And being able to put that in a message to players, to coaches, to parents to say, this is what we expect. And you know, the the standards of where are you as a player that will develop and change over time where you are as a person, mm-hmm. you know, that, that can be put in from day one. And one of the things that we had at the last club that the coaches decided upon was we, if we are sent for a drink break as a, a club, we run out, we run in. We want to spend as much time playing football mm-hmm. as we can. 
So we don't walk out and waste time. We don't walk back and waste time. So that's a standard and that was implemented and that didn't change. Now, that's a very small example, especially when you're talking about human behavior. But it can be little things like that. It can be the domino effect. You know, if you can change one little thing, if you can change another little thing. And over time, all those little changes create bigger changes. But one of the things that I said when I went into my last club, day one, if you're going to be late, communicate. Mm. You're allowed to be late, but you're not allowed to be late and not say anything. You know, it is common courtesy. If we've got a 10, 11, a 12 o'clock meeting and you're going to be five minutes late, tell me. It's okay, but don't be five minutes late and walk in as though it's it's fine. Um, the the term island time gets thrown around right. for yeah, don't right. worry about it, right? And that's that's very much part of the Malaysian culture of yeah, don't worry about it. And if you're catching up with a with a fellow colleague for a beer to watch a game, being five minutes late for that, mm-hmm. not too bad. But if you're in a meeting where we had all 13 coaches and myself but 12 of the coaches are there and that 13th coach is MIA have respect for the rest of your coaching group have respect yep. for yourself have respect for the, the time and effort that people have put in to get where they need to go uh, so that was a big one for us you can be late but communicate um, we had a number of pushback moments from parents on that one Uh, you know one of the rules that we put in place was if you are late five minutes and you don't communicate you sit out five minutes if you do communicate you can be late 45 minutes right but you step straight into the session yeah and it was just about trying to give a little bit of respect for absolutely yourself your team your coach Uh, but parents took that as being really negative or really harsh and it wasn't meant to be it was just about trying to instill some discipline, good manners, good behaviours. And eventually that kind of trickled through the club and it became stock standard for the vast majority of people. So little steps to create bigger steps. Uh, That's how I'd go in and change things. I think it's going to be really hard to move a mountain in one go. Mm -hmm. But if you start chipping away at it. uh, So yeah, that was an incredibly long answer for don't try and eat a whale at one time. It's bit by bit. And obviously now, in addition to your coaching, you've stepped into more of a, a consulting type of role through through your organization, Football Connections. For like, what what do you feel like through through Football Connections you're able to offer to clubs, um, whether it's you know on or off the field? The idea of Football Connections came from seeing what clubs wanted to do, but didn't have the resource to do. So. In 2019, I spent three months just traveling through Asia. I went to seven different countries, spoke with, I've got no idea how many coaches, um, TDs, DOCs, sporting directors. And one of the biggest things that they spoke about was not having the money to do something or not having the, the knowledge to do something. So as part of Football Connections, I'm essentially a remote TD. I'm a remote sporting director, remote uh, director of coaching so that the club doesn't have the cost of bringing in someone from the outside who has the knowledge. Hmm. And I'm fortunate enough that I've got a youthy license and a senior license. So if people are saying, okay, how do we go from that level to that level? More often than not, I've had experience working, whether it's putting together a curriculum whether it's working with coach development or just club structure, planning for something in whatever level they want to achieve. But then they don't have the cost of housing me. They don't have a cost of a full-time salary, but they've still got access to me. So one of the clubs that I'm working with, they, um, they've just changed what their goal was, and it was to get money from every FIFA tournament now, that, that sounds kind of weird. And the first time that they put that to the board of directors, one of the directors said, so we're we just chasing money now. And we kind of had to backtrack it. So, okay, clubs can get money from FIFA tournaments if a player that they've had registered in the last two years goes to that FIFA tournament. Mm. Okay. 
But to have that, you need to have a player who's within the best 23 available players for that tournament in the country. Okay, how do we get the best 23 players? Well, we need to do this. How do we develop those players physically, mentally, you know, the the four corners? How do we get each of those four corners? Okay, then it comes back to coach development. After Mm -hmm. the coach development, then it comes back to parent education. So as much as that's the end goal, you work back to, okay, what do we need to do to get that end goal? Well, it comes down to player development. It comes down to coach development. It comes down to creating the right environment. And after explaining that, the question that was asked was, okay, when do we start? So it might sound a very you know, financially driven goal, but to get to that goal, you need to do everything else right. Yeah. You need to have a curriculum in place, coach education in place. So that's what I do um, with Football Connections. We go in and we kind of plan for where do you want to go? Okay, where are you right now? And these are the steps in between. And it's set up to be a money saver for the clubs. You've got access to knowledge, but without having to bring me in full time. Mm-hmm. Uh, because if you if you are going somewhere as a coach, there's two ways of getting a contract. Either you get a larger contract in terms of money, and you're told to go and sort out your accommodation, your car and everything else. Or you get a smaller amount of money, but the club takes on the the cost of accommodation, car, phone, and all that. Right. But if you can take that away and you say, okay, you can still be remote, but I'll speak to you X number of hours a week. Well, they don't need to worry about flights. They don't need to worry about accommodation. They've still got access to the information without having that big cost associated. So that's where Football Connections comes in to, to try and help clubs. Um I've hopefully got an announcement coming this coming week uh, regarding a club in North America. Um, so yeah, it's uh, it's been great. It's uh, it's something that I've done for a number of years now alongside my coaching, and I enjoy the business strategizing part of it. Sure. Yeah. Uh, to to complement the yeah. the on field coaching part. So yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's uh, it's something that I'm doing right now. That whilst I've got this time in between jobs, that I'll I'll be able to put everything into it. Yeah, that's exciting. Congratulations on that going, you know, North America. So, and and my question would be then, what would be maybe the 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 size, the level of club that you'd be a fit for? Is it for you know teams of professional academies? Is it just more youth and grassroots, or or who do you think you're able to help? The majority would be grassroots and. Youth. So the, the professional academies generally fall with under club licensing. And within club licensing, there is a really good framework of what they need to have in place and what they need to do. But often they've got the budget to do that. Some of the clubs that I've worked with, like some of the guys in Vietnam, um, they have to fall under club licensing, but they don't have the budget to do it 100%. So you would see if you especially if you focus on Asian football, clubs will get their national certificate for club licensing, but they'll fail for the Asian Football Confederation one. So if they get into a position where they, they can qualify for the ACL, they're not allowed to participate because they've mm, not ticked certain boxes. Yeah. Yep. So the first club that I ever did this with and not actually knowing that I was doing it was the club um, Beerwa Glasshouse United. Um, Beerwa Glasshouse United, affectionately known as Bee Gees. Uh, it's a, a kilometre away from Australia Zoo where Steve Irwin mm. had set up uh, his facility. And the president at the time said, how can we just make the best on-field offering that we can? And I went through club licensing for the FC and we kind of ticked all the boxes, not to the highest standard because we didn't have the resource to do that and not for the off-field stuff because I didn't have control over that. But it was okay what do we need to put in place to just have the best offering that we can? And by giving the best offering, well, that will then take us to the next level. So any grassroots club that want to just become more professional without becoming professional or just take your club or player development or coach development to the next level, that's who I can work with. That's who I have been working with. Uh, So yeah, hopefully that answers that part. Yeah, excellent. Yeah, so it sounds like that's, I know from my work within grassroots and the youth level is, you know, there are a lot of clubs that are more professionally run, but then there's still a lot that are, are volunteer and, 
they have the passion or desire, but maybe not necessarily the, the skills, the knowledge, the experience, like you said. Um, and then again, resources is always a, a challenge. Um, so yeah. I, I wish you luck with, I think it's, it's a great way to be able to, to support and leverage technology that we have to, to support, uh, many different clubs and, and create better environment for players, both on and off the pitch. So definitely we'll be looking for more. We'll put a link uh, to your LinkedIn and, and all your contact information in the description, whether you're watching on YouTube or listening on, on one of our many podcast sites. So if you need to get in touch with Chris about that, you know, we'd love to facilitate uh, that connection. The way that we, uh, the way that we end every podcast is by asking our guests to end the sentence uh, and I'm, I'm very excited to, to hear your answer here, Chris. Um, so could you finish the sentence, because football, dot, dot, dot. Because football, I have had a lifetime of phenomenal experiences and been able to meet people from different walks of life that if I had stayed in Scotland, I would never have had the chance to meet. Great answer. Yeah, it gives us so much and you've been able to experience and really it's been your ticket to cuisines all over the world. So I think, you know, we, we've all figured out what you're in it for, um, you know, yep. a close second to creating a, a safe environment for the kids is is the food, right? That's that's close. Absolutely. There, so. <laughs> Absolutely. I, awesome. I posted something on Instagram uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and one of the things that's great about Asia is there's so many countries so close to each mm -hmm. other. Yeah. And I wrote, you know, have you ever woke up in the morning and craved really good coffee? And I did a, a trip. One of my contacts said, look, I'm going to be in Vietnam for a few days. Why don't you come and visit? So I just posted about the coffee that I was getting in Vietnam. And one of the kids saw it and asked the coach, our first team coach, uh, she was asked, did Coach Steely just go to Vietnam for coffee? No. Coffee. They wouldn't put it past yeah. you. Wouldn't put it past no, you. they wouldn't. Fantastic. No, fantastic. Awesome. Well, this was great. We could have so many more uh, talks about all your experiences and, and uh, both as a player and a coach, but really enjoyed this and, and definitely look forward to, to watching uh, what you're able to achieve with Football Connections and in your next uh, director role too, and, and wish you the best with that. So thank you so much, Chris. No, thank you very much for having me on. It was a great chat. It was a pleasure. All right. Thank you all for watching and listening. Uh, I think we've got a lot of great nuggets here for players, for parents and, and uh, club administrators too. So it really is, is covering a lot of people in the soccer world, which is the side of a, a great Because Football episode. So we'll see you on the next one. Thank you so much for watching.